Hi, everybody. Don Paul here on Don Paul's podcast called Bits of Blather on Weather, Climate, and Science. And as I always preface each episode, this will be, I think, episode 10. Uh, if you're enjoying this podcast, please share. That's the only way a non-national figure, you know, I ain't no Al Roker. I'm a meteorologist who's worked in Western New York for decades. Uh, but a non-national figure to get a podcast going needs word of mouth, word of keyboard. So I do reach out to you and ask you to share. Uh, we're going to do a checklist on the newest consensus on what we know about COVID that the public needs to know about. And uh, this checklist was put together uh, just two days ago by Associated Press, but the points and opinions I'm going to speak about are not those of the journalists. These are the journalists reaching out to top experts in the field for what is known about particular facets of COVID and what's been changing more recently. First of all, the question on immunity and herd immunity. Well, I covered the false uh, premise of trying to get herd immunity by just letting the disease run its course. That would be a disastrous and almost murderous policy being pushed by radiologist Dr. Scott Atlas in the White House, but uh, it's not supported at all by the medical community. This is a separate issue. Am I immune to the coronavirus if I've already had it? You know you've had it. Well, you should have some immunity, but there's a lot of uncertainty about how much. There appears to be less immunity for people who had very slight cases and a little more for people who had moderate and even more severe cases. But there is also some growing evidence that the immunity from uh, infection with the virus is not permanent. That's not a sure thing yet. There still needs to be more research. Uh, cases of reinfection so far have been infrequent, but there have been a few confirmed. Uh, so if you had a confirmed infection, say, in March or April, your level of immunity may be shrinking as I speak. And uh, that's meaning basically you need to continue to take the precautions that the general non-infected public needs to take. Same deal. Wear masks, especially indoors. And of course, do the hand washing thing and uh, stay out of indoor crowded situations at all costs and even fairly crowded outdoor uh, situations on a crowded bike path. Uh, and I won't even speak about political rallies. That is mass madness and uh, it's aided and abetted by the people holding the rallies. They are super spreader potential, every one of them. Is it safe to go to the gym during the coronavirus pandemic? As a senior type, I have elected not to go to the gym, uh, but you can't just go by my opinion. Uh, it just heightens the risk when you're in my age bracket, and it depends partly on where you live. For example, New York City's rate of infection right now is a, about as low as it gets, gets in the lower 48 states. In any metro area, it is definitely the lowest. Uh, if you live in a high infection area, uh, such as uh, parts of the upper Midwest now, the north central states, the risk of infection in a gymnasium setting would probably be higher than in an area of the country where the rate of infection is much lower. And uh, here's what Dr. Mary Beth Sexton, who is an assistant professor of infectious diseases at 
the elite medical school of Emory University says, uh, some of it's common sense. Avoid the locker room, bring your own water bottle if you're going to go and use hand sanitizer as much as you can. And now you're going to have staff at any gym that's been allowed to reopen trying to wipe everything down as much as possible, but you still do have to worry about exhalation from people who are huffing and puffing. And that's the main reason I've chosen not to go to the gym. Uh, even if you have the most conscientious gym staff, um, the huffing and puffing, if someone's not got a good mask or wearing it properly, still presents some increase in risk. And so obviously face coverings need to be worn at the gym if you're going, even if you're hot and you're huffing and puffing. And uh, Dr. Sexton also suggests bringing a backup mask because if the one you're wearing gets wetted down from your own perspiration, it will be less effective in blocking the viral particulate uh, matter in both directions. So gyms do pose a risk. Most gyms are indoors. The ventilation uh, is somewhat limited. You know the makeup of your own gym. And social distancing, while gyms are where they're allowed to reopen, for example, in New York State, uh, social distancing is mandatory, but it can be pretty uneven and challenging. So what the doctor said is also common sense. If you can exercise by yourself outside, that's safer than being at the gym. In my own case, I still do lots of bike riding when the weather's adequate and uh, lots of power walks with my powerful dog, Molly. Uh, yeah, probably my upper body workout is not good enough right now, but if you can break a sweat, and that's what a lot of doctors are saying, you are getting meaningful exercise. Okay, next question, has the coronavirus mutated in any significant way? So far, the vir virologists are saying it doesn't seem that there's been a major uh, mutation that would change in a way that makes people less or more sick. Uh, there's some evidence that one particular mutation has made it easier for the virus to be transmitted between people, but that is not yet confirmed. There's ongoing uh, research. One study, one paper doesn't lay down the law in science. You have to be able to repeat the results. So it's possible that it's becoming more infectious, but it is not conclusive uh, still. There's no signs that it no signs in any of the data that it's becoming less infectious, and that should be obvious from uh, in many states the skyrocketing rates of infection in this third surge, where uh, more than 30 of the 50 states now are seeing a rapid increase in infection rate, which a few weeks later results in an increased rate of hospitalizations. The mortality rate is not necessarily going up, but the more infections you get, the more deaths are going to occur. What does a face mask really protect, me or others? Well, originally, a lot of the stories I was seeing in the press was it was one-way protection. You were wearing it to be a good citizen and keep from spreading the virus to others, uh, since so many of the uh, people with the infection are still asymptomatic. Now, the data continues to come in that the mask also affords some protection to the wearer. It is a two-way street. It's a bigger factor in protecting against spread from you to others, but it is also a factor in preventing some spread from others 
to you. So that's even more of a reason to wear a mask. And it's obviously a good thing that so many businesses now are knuckling down and uh, supermarket chains are making them required. And the number of people trying to make this into pol a political issue, well, that number is still significant, even though it's totally and absolutely illogical and dangerous. That number appears to be shrinking in social uh, focus groups. It seems that slowly, maybe not the people going to the political rallies, but slowly the number of people resisting the wearing of masks is shrinking and will shrink even more as the numbers are very definitely headed in the wrong direction at the worst time of the year as we're in mid-autumn and the flu season uh, hasn't kicked into high gear. And we'll get to the flu in a second. Does my employer have to say if a coworker has the virus? Uh, they're generally in most states not legally required to tell workers. I think uh, the CDC recommends that companies monitor employees and alert those who may have been in contact with an infected person. And some states may order businesses to follow such guidance, but it's not universal in all 50 states. Uh, in my uh, business that I had been in, most broadcast stations are letting staff know when someone on staff has become infected. But again, um, you gotta keep your ears open because that policy is not being universally followed by business owners or management. What should I look like in a hand sanitizer? That hasn't changed too much. Um, you should avoid anything with methanol or one propanol uh, because they're highly toxic. Yeah, they'll kill germs, but they could kill you too. Uh, you need to use uh, hand sanitizers that contain either 60% ethyl alcohol or 70% isopropyl alcohol. Other approved ingredients may include, in addition to the alcohol, sterile distilled water, hydrogen peroxide, and glycerin as a moisturizer, because that alcohol can be mighty, mighty drying. And of course, good soap and water for at least 20 seconds with thorough scrubbing of the hands uh, works about as well, in some cases, better. Can I use a face shield instead of a mask? That sounds like an insult your intelligence question, but no, there is no evidence whatsoever that a face shield without a mask does the trick. Far too open to breathing the viral uh, particulates, particles. What are the three types of coronavirus tests now being most widely used? Genetic tests, these include the nasal swabs. They're generally considered the most accurate way to diagnose an infection. Still not perfect, but the false negative numbers on genetic tests have gone down since the earlier stage uh, during the early spring. These tests do take hours to process at the lab, so you're not gonna get your results from a genetic test back for at least a day. Uh, there are rapid uh, tests, a handful of them, that take about 15 minutes on site. Um, the efficacy of those tests still somewhat uncertain. Other genetic tests, uh, the first one being developed at my alma mater, Rutgers, the saliva test instead of a swab. It's certainly less invasive. It's less of a risk uh, to healthcare workers, and they do work well, but you don't get those back the same day either. And some healthcare plans cover them, some don't, uh, but it, it seems to be a very good type of test. Antigen tests are a newer type of test that look for proteins found on the surface of a coronavirus rather than the virus itself. 
They're just hitting the market. Experts hope they'll expand testing, speed up the results, but they are not as accurate at this stage as genetic tests. They are cheaper, faster, and require less lab equipment. But they And they still do require a nasal swab, but um, there are hopes these will be a near match for genetic tests. They're not quite there yet. And antibody tests are different. They look for proteins that the body makes to fight off infections in a patient's blood sample. Antibodies are a sign that a person previously had COVID, not whether you have it right now. And scientists don't know if antibodies uh, protect people from another infection or how long that protection might last. Uh, the rules on masks in schools, of, cross, of course, vary all across the country. How can you tell the difference between the flu and COVID-19? Well, here's a big problem. The two viruses have nothing in common in one sense. COVID is a coronavirus. A coronavirus is a whole class of viruses, some of which are very common and not a major threat, common colds or coronaviruses. The flu is not a, a cold coronavirus. However, the symptoms in many cases are hard, even for an MD, to tell the difference when the respiratory system is involved. You get a lot of the same system, body aches, uh, which can be really bad with the flu, sore throat, fever, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, and headaches. They are symptoms shared by both viruses. One difference, people with the flu typically feel sickest during the first week of illness. With COVID-19, people will tend to feel the worst during the second or third week, and they may be sicker for a longer period. So uh, if you feel some of the symptoms and they don't get too bad, and then the next week they do get bad, that's probably not the flu. That's more likely to be COVID, and you should call your doctor's office at that stage and find out what you do next to get tested and diagnosed. And um, there's so much community transmission of, it, of influenza uh, and widespread testing for the flu. It's out there, but it's not yet recommended. Uh, it's kind of hard to do. I had it done early in February this past winter. I had flu symptoms and this was before COVID was becoming uh, widely known to the public. I got tested for and, and was detected with influenza type A. In fact, I had had the flu shot in October and my case of the flu was relatively mild. Uh, my MD and the nurse practitioner who tested me said the odds were if I hadn't gotten the shot because the shot doesn't always prevent the flu, my symptoms would have been much more severe and I would have gotten a very bad case of the flu instead of the mild case. As far as spread amongst children, uh, it hasn't changed drastically in the last few weeks. It still appears that children under 10 years of age are less infectious and less likely, but not impossible, the way a certain leader has tried to express it. Not impossible that a small child can get seriously ill, but in general, children under 10 less likely to spread the disease. Once a child is over 10, the rate of, of contagion increases dramatically so that teenagers can spread the virus all the heck over the place, including to friends, grandparents, other people's, other friends, parents, et cetera, et cetera. Does a flu shot reduce my chances of getting COVID? Not in the least, but 
to get both the flu and the COVID, which is quite possible, is a bad deal. So it's more important than in any year in my long lifetime to get the flu shot this year and soon because the flu numbers are starting to go up. Uh, because if you have complications from the flu and then contract COVID, your risk of grave complications from COVID increase exponentially. It becomes a much greater threat. You don't want to get, it's bad enough to get either one of these, but COVID is far more dangerous than the flu and COVID with the flu leaves you in a really sad situation and dangerous situation. Uh, overall severity of symptoms, and this is data from the CDC and the National Institutes of Health, 80% of COVID cases have mild or no symptoms. 15% of COVID cases become seriously ill. 5% get critically ill. As far as risk factor, factors by age, obviously the older you are, the more serious the health threat is. Eight out of 10 COVID-19 related deaths occur in people aged 65 and older. That's eight out of 10 deaths are people in my age bracket. And that increases even more uh, when you're over 75 and 85. Hard to picture anyone 85 listening to a podcast by me, but who knows? And then the comorbidities, cancer, chronic kidney disease, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, an immunocompromised state that could be from chemotherapy or from other infections you've had or from a recent organ transplant, obesity, body mass index of 30 or higher means you're clinically obese, serious heart conditions such as heart failure, coronary artery, artery disease, sickle cell disease, and type 2 diabetes. So those are the latest checklist items. Oh, one, one last thing on isolation. Uh, symptoms may or may not appear, but if you know you've had it you should, or you, you know you've been exposed, it takes at least 10 days since you were first exposed to be sure it's safe to stop isolating. And uh, no fever for at least 72 hours without use of fever-reducing medicine like aspirin, ibuprofen, or acetaminophen. Uh, so if, if you've had a fever, you should be without a fever for at least three days without taking fever-reducing medicine. And if your symptoms have improved, isolation may end. You should still check with your doctor, and a healthcare provider may recommend testing. So those are the uh, latest consensus viewpoints from the health experts, not from Don Paul. Uh, thanks for listening this far, and I hope this list is helpful to you. I do my best to make sure everything that I'm uh, telling you is from an authoritative source, which isn't always me, but this time I've checked that out pretty carefully. Talk to you very soon.